0: Well hello again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. This week, another partner-only edition where we finish our little series on faith, love and hope as the essential nature of the Christian life, as the big three theological virtues of Christian living. So far we've looked at why these big three are important, we've looked at faith and we've had a double episode on love and today we come to hope. And hope sometimes feels to me a bit like the third wheel or the poor relation in the big three, Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. We all appreciate how foundational faith is. Faith has trust in God and in his son and in his promise. Everything starts with God, with him revealing himself and saving us by his grace. We know this. And so it's not hard for us to grasp that everything in our Christian life starts with faith, with grabbing hold of God and his promise. Because that's what faith really is. It's, it's like our trusting, outstretched hand that grabs hold of the lifesaver's hand and clings onto it and is drawn out of the waters of death that are threatening us into a new life. That's faith. We all understand faith. And love. We get how love flows on from that. How love is the basic character of that new life we're born into. We're set free from the darkened mind of our previous life, the kind of inward, selfish, proud mind that we had. Some lights go on in that brain of ours and we start to see the goodness of God and the truth about God and through him the goodness of everything all around us that he's given us to love, including most especially the people around us that we love. Love summarises not only our relationship with God, our ongoing relationship with him, but our essential attitude or stance towards everyone and everything in God's world. I think we understand that love is the basic character of the Christian life and it flows out of faith. But what about hope? Would we miss hope if it wasn't there, if it wasn't listed by Paul so constantly as part of the big three aspects of the Christian life? I suspect many... Contemporary Christians wouldn't miss it, particularly. And I wonder if this is because we just don't appreciate how future-focused the Christian gospel really is. We very easily see the gospel as mainly being about the forgiveness and the salvation that we receive now by faith. And the incredible new life, the blessed new life that we start living now in love on the basis of faith. Which is, of course, true. But perhaps it's only half true, or maybe I should say two-thirds true. Because what we receive by faith now and live out in love now is a guaranteed place in God's future. It's a faith and love that are exercised in hope of what's to come. And many Christians don't really grasp this. Nor, we should say, did everybody in the New Testament grasp it either. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the thing he really wanted them to grasp, to have the eyes of their hearts opened up to see, as he puts it, was just how extraordinary their future was. He wanted them to understand the hope that awaited them and to live accordingly. What he says to them in Ephesians 1, if I can roughly paraphrase the second half of Ephesians 1, is something like this. He says, by being in Christ... We Jewish believers, those of us who are the first to believe in Christ, we've become what God always destined us to be, to be God's very own possession, the people whom he will redeem and adopt and gather around his son for all eternity. And what's even more extraordinary is that it's now become clear that this eternal plan of God was always to include you Gentiles as well. That plan has come to fruition now because when you heard the gospel that came to you and trusted in Jesus Christ, you too became united with Christ and therefore with all of us as well. You too were redeemed and you too are now part of the fellowship of love that we saints all share in Christ. And you too have received the Holy Spirit as the guarantee and down payment of the inheritance that's going to come when God finally makes us his own for all eternity in his Son. But if there's one thing that I pray for you, says Paul, it's that you would come to appreciate just how massive and glorious and mind-blowing that future hope is, the one that you now share with all of us. I'm praying that God would open up your heart to see and to know and to grasp and to long for what lies in store, what we're waiting and hoping for, Because we're now united with the majestic, risen Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of all. All words to that effect. That's what Paul's saying to them in Ephesians 1. He wants them to lean into their future, to grasp it, to understand it, to long for it. Because that's what the gospel is about. It's about the guaranteed promise of having a place in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. This way of thinking is is all over the New Testament. It's the logic of the first chapter of Colossians, for example. And it's always funny to me how often Colossians and Ephesians kind of line up and say quite similar things. In the first few verses of Colossians, Paul speaks of the gospel that came to them that spoke of a hope laid up in heaven for you. So this gospel about the hope laid up in heaven was the thing that they trusted and that gave them a new love for all the saints. There's the saints again. Again, I think probably talking about the original Jewish believers that they've now become united with in Christ. And then Paul goes on to pray in verse 9 following of Colossians 1 that their spiritual wisdom and understanding would grow so that, among other things, they would endure with patience and joy until they receive the glorious inheritance, the inheritance that they've been now qualified for. And that inheritance is a place with all the saints in the eternal kingdom of the supreme and beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul prays this way for the Colossians, as indeed he does for the Ephesians, that they would grasp and understand the glories of the coming kingdom and of his beloved Son and their place in it. And he prays it so that they will endure with patience and joy and live out that future in their lives now. And when he gets down to what that lifestyle now really means in chapter 3 of Colossians, it's much the same way of thinking. He says to them, you're already raised with Christ, you've been crucified with him, now you're raised with him, your life belongs with him in heaven, your future is with him. You belong to him, and one day that will be made clear to everybody. I'm now kind of riffing on Colossians 3, 1 to 4. And then he says, So set your hearts and minds there on Jesus Christ and your future with him. And as a consequence, put to death everything that belongs to this current earthly age. Get ready for what is to come by getting rid of the vices of the present and putting on instead the virtues of the heavenly future, the ultimate virtue of which is love, and that's where he gets to as Colossians 3 goes along. It's a very similar pattern of thought, and it's based on the idea that the gospel announces an extraordinary future, the future of the crucified and risen king, Jesus Christ, and invites and calls upon everyone to be part of that future, to be part of his kingdom by repenting and putting their trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel contains a hope, a living hope, as Peter calls it, because it's essentially the expectation that one day we too will live and reign with the living, reigning Jesus Christ. It's what Paul calls elsewhere the hope of righteousness in Galatians 5, of standing justified and blameless before God on that great future day. It's the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in Titus chapter 2. Now, we can sometimes get a little bit confused about hope because it has two senses. And I wonder if you've already noticed to some extent that's the case just in the verses that I've been quoting. Hope sometimes refers to the thing in the future that I'm waiting for like the blessed hope of Jesus returning in Titus 2, or the hope of righteousness that we wait for in Galatians 5. But the noun hope also often describes my present experience of waiting for it. And of course, the verb to hope for something also means this as well. This is how Paul talks about hope in Romans 5, where he speaks about suffering producing endurance and endurance producing character, and character producing hope Hope here is a confident waiting for what will be ours, an expectation that we have that won't be disappointed, says Paul, because God has already demonstrated his love for us by justifying us, even though we were his enemies, through the blood of Christ. It's in this second sense that hope is one of the big three, one of the cardinal virtues of the Christian life. Hope is something that we enact or experience in response to the gospel, like having faith or like loving other people. In response to the gospel, we wait and expect and long for and hope for the inheritance that is stored up for us in the future. So how is hope different from faith? We sometimes wonder this. Faith is the active dependence and confidence that God and his son and his promise can be relied upon, can be relied upon totally. Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Lord. We are justified now by his blood. We are raised up with him now in the heavenlies. Faith grabs hold of all these truths that God has spoken and trusts them and depends upon them. Hope is the necessary consequence of that trust or that conviction. It's the patient, joyful longing and waiting for that promised inheritance finally to arrive. I can't resist one last New Testament example that ties all these three things together. And it's in the marvellous first chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, as he recounts their response to the gospel that he brought to them. Paul says that the Thessalonians heard the word of God, the word about his son, the saving, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, they trusted or had faith in this word with full conviction and joy by the work of the Holy Spirit, so much so that their faith became famous everywhere. And it was famous because everyone saw and told how they had turned away from their idols to begin a whole new life, a life of love for others and of service of the true and living God, and how they waited even in the midst of affliction with Joyful steadfastness of hope for Jesus to come from heaven and to rescue them from the wrath to come. This experience of confidently waiting and longing and hoping for that glorious future that we are guaranteed to receive and inherit, this is the sense in which hope is one of the three great Christian virtues. If I can put it this way, we enter the Christian life through the door of faith. And it's a new life of love for God and for others. But it's an inescapably future-oriented new life. It stretches out like a road in front of us with a glorious inheritance at the end of it. And that forward lean that keeps its eye on the glorious future that the gospel promises, that strains towards it, that seeks to live now in light of it, that joyfully endures suffering in the meantime, that's hope. And when our Christian lives lack hope, they stop leaning forward and they become overpowered by the present. The sufferings of the present, for example, dumbfound us and dismay us. We don't see them as part of a future-oriented plan or process that builds endurance and character and hope. We tend to see them as catastrophic interruptions to the blessed and good life that we're living now. When hope is weak, we respond badly to suffering and to trials. We either descend into bitterness or doubt or despair, or perhaps we try to wish those troubles and sufferings away by insisting that they should not be part of our experience now, which is essentially what the prosperity gospel does in all its different forms. But it's not only sufferings and troubles. When we lack hope, when our hope is weak, The good things and blessings of our present life are also a problem for us. They begin to dazzle and distract us. We forget who we are and where we're going. We become obsessed and taken up with the comforts and possibilities of now. And we lose sight of the infinitely greater joys and glories of then. I suggested at the beginning of this piece that many people today don't grasp just how significant hope is as one of the three pillars of the Christian life. Our difficulties in dealing with suffering and with blessing are symptoms of this. And so we need to teach each other and remind each other to hope in God, to hope in the future that the gospel holds out to us, and pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts to see it. I hope you found those thoughts about hope as one of the three pillars of the Christian life. I hope you found them useful. I have to say at the end of this piece and indeed of the others on faith and love, I find myself feeling how inadequate a treatment it is of such a massive subject. But perhaps a... A brief and inadequate treatment of the subject that draws our minds back to it is better than no treatment of the subject at all. So I do hope you find that useful. Thanks again for being here this week and also for the messages and emails and other comments that you keep sending in. I really do appreciate those. You can contact me anytime just by emailing me at tonyjpain at me.com, tonyjpain at me.com. Or you can go across to the website to online, and you can comment at the end of any of the articles there. Thanks again for being here and for listening and engaging. It's great to be able to bring the Word of God to you in this way and I keep praying that God would open the eyes of your hearts to hear it and understand it. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.